Okay, we continue on in our sermon series on the book of Judges. And this morning, we're going to continue with the sermon. Basically, this is part two of the sermon from last week. Um, This morning, we are in Judges chapter 9. We will cover verses 7 through 21. And this is a deadly conspiracy, part two. So, for those of you that were unable to be with us last week, or just a reminder for those of it those of you that were here, this is what's happened so far at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. The judge, Gideon, has died. And Israel immediately abandons two things. First, most importantly, they abandon Yahweh, the Lord God. Secondly, they abandon Gideon's family after his death. They've forgotten him and what he's done. And they turn to the Baals. They make this false god, which chapter 8 tells us is is named Baal Barit, the Lord of the Covenant. They make this their god. And we're told they do not remember the Lord their god, Yahweh. And they do did not show steadfast love to the family of Yerubbaal, that is Gideon. Gideon's son, Abimelech, whose name means my father is king, enters into a conspiracy with the rulers, the lords of the city of Shechem, and his mother's family, who's from this city, to finance him in becoming the king of the Israelites. Even though his father, Gideon, had refused the offer of kingship by the men of Israel at large, and Gideon had vowed that neither he nor his sons would be king, because the men of Israel wanted to set Gideon up as king and create a a dynasty, a dynastic house, where not only would Gideon be king, but his sons and grandsons after him. But Gideon refused and said, Only Yahweh shall be our king. So Abimelech received 70 shekels of silver from the rulers of Shechem. And with this he hires what the Bible calls worthless and reckless fellows. That is, hoodlums, gangsters, mob hitmen. And they, Abimelech, And these hitmen go to Gideon's hometown of Ophrah. And there they kill Gideon's 70 half-brothers on one stone. However, they botch the job. One of the brothers escapes, the youngest, Yatam. He runs for his life and he gets away. For a moment, let's try and put ourselves in Yaham's shoes. What is he, what he's witnessed here? Imagine running and hiding from a team of hitmen who have slaughtered your family. You've witnessed it. You watched the murder of all of your brothers, 69 brothers. But that's not bad enough. You see this horrifying spectacle that we talked about last week that tells us that these, these men were murdered on one stone. So one at a time, you see your brothers dragged to this stone, like a stone altar, laid on it, and murdered. 
or sacrificed, and you're watching all of this. And what makes it even worse is that your half-brother, Avimelech, is the one murdering your brothers. And Avimelech must be the one murdering his brothers because he intends to seize the throne of Gideon, even though Gideon has never been on a throne. But as we've seen, Gideon has functioned as a king, as an ancient Near East king. So Avimelech must remove all other potential competitors for the throne in order for his claim to hold. And he's willing to do this. He's he's willing to eliminate his whole family. So even though Gideon's words denied that he would be king, Abimelech acts to ensure that he will be acknowledged as king, not only in word, but in deed. He is acting exactly like a tyrannical ancient Near East king. So you witness all of this, and then you run. You run as fast and as quietly as you can away to save your own life, to save your neck then the murderer, your half-brother, is crowned king. This is told to you. People come to you and say, it's happening. They're making him king. But not by the men of Israel, as was offered to their father, Gideon, but by the lords of Shechem, a city of the northern tribe of Ephraim. So what we got going on here, we could see this as a power play between the two northern tribes, uh, Manasseh, which is um, Gideon, Avimelech's father, that's his tribe. And Ephraim, that's Avimelech's mother's tribe. They've entered into a conspiracy to control Israel. This is like five East Coast mob families installing a president of the United States. It's a conspiracy. And Yotam watches this ceremony. Imagine watching, watching this. Then when his brother and the bigwigs who put him into power head into the grand coronation reception, then Yotam springs into action. We're going to pick up the story in Judges 9, verses 7 through 15. So please open your Bibles there uh, and follow along as I read. Judges 9, 7 through 15. When it was told to Yatham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. They said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to him, said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, 
If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now here we read in this story that Tom is, is, is repeating that he's telling is these, the most valuable domesticated plants in the ancient Near East. They're, they're, they're mentioned, and they refuse to abandon their productive lives in order to sway over or just stand and wave in the breeze over the other trees. And only the bramble is willing to do this. What comes from a bramble? Thorns, only thorns. This makes us think of the fall in the garden, Genesis 3.18, where God curses the ground and there will be thorns in it. This is a result of sin that these brambles exist. The bramble does not provide any fruit. The bramble, think of a bramble bush, a thorn bush. Can you get shade under a thorn bush? No, can these trees, the fig trees, the olive trees, can any of them take cover under a bramble bush and be provided for? No. So this plant that wants to be king does not contribute to the life of men or to God's creation compared to these other trees. So imagine the scene in which this, this fable is being told and the pomp and circumstances of a king's coronation. The newly crowned king and the VIPs in attendance are about to partake in a feast and to celebrate the fact that they've made this great conspiracy come about and they've moved into power. They are exactly where they want to be when suddenly a yell interrupts the festivities. Hey, listen to me, you big shots, resounds over where they're gathered. And they turn their attention to this figure on top of nearby Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is located actually right near um, where Shechem was. And it's been known since the time of Moses and Joshua as the mountain of blessing. And on this mountain, even today, there's a geographical feature that's known as the Ledge of Yatam where archaeologists say you could climb up to this ledge halfway up and there's a natural amphitheater where you could talk and the people in the town below could hear every word that you say. And ironically, this mountain of blessing for the rulers of Shechem becomes a mountain of curses. So in in verses 7 through 21, the focus shifts to this young lad, Yatam, who is presented as a positive character, unlike his half-brother, Avimelech. Avimelech, as we've learned, his name means, my father is king. And this reflects Avimelech's ambition, that he too shall be king. However, Yatam's name is different. It's an expression of true faith that means, the Lord is perfect or the Lord is honest. And this is going to be confirmed in this part of the account, in the manner in which God resolves the problems raised by Avimelech's conspiracy. 
In contrast to Abimelech, who seeks to rule by sheer power, Yotam is relatively impotent. He's powerless. And since he's the only survivor of a family murdered by this half-brother and a conspiracy with the lords of Shechem, he cannot enter in to Shechem to make his point, to make his case. He would forfeit his life if he were to do that. Therefore, he must speak from the mountain outside the city. And after he's done speaking, he must flee for his life. And precisely because he was politically powerless, Yatam chooses a powerful rhetorical device to accuse these conspirators. He chooses to tell them a fable. Fables historically have been a method of delivering pointed messages to the powerful from the powerless. The sting of a moral rebuke in a fable is couched in a tale involving talking animals, plants, or in this case, trees. But in a modern sense, we can think of this, so it makes sense to us, it's like a literary political cartoon. And the message is remarkably relevant even in our modern world. And the first point of relevance I'd like to, I'd like to uh, talk to you about is whereas in, the, in most cases in the ancient Near East, kingship was viewed as positive, desirable, necessary, and coveted by all, Yatam perceives it as fundamentally negative. Interesting that historians and great writers over the course of, of the Western civilization have often said that great cities are founded by great crimes. And also great dynasties, great dynasties, if you're British, are founded by great criminals. And we see this. If you read history deeply, you see that kings are often the ones who are left standing when there is a slaughter and bloodshed and skullduggery going on to seize power. This is where kingship secularly speaking, historically comes from. If you read the histories of the kings of England, you see this time and time again. It's impossible to miss. However, there's one great exception to this, what I would say is a blanket rule of kingship, and we find it only in the anointed messianic king that Yahweh brings to the throne, the line of David. This is the only place where we, we really don't see a great crime installing a king. We see the blessing from the Lord God in bringing a human king through which the Son of God, the true king, will assume the throne. But that doesn't last very long in human experience, does it? It quickly goes wrong for David's offspring. After Solomon, there's a revolution, there's a civil war, and men split off from uh, Israel and form the northern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, every single king that rules in that split-off rebellious land is evil. And we read this in all the historical books of the Old Testament. They all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're back to this idea of, a, of great dynasties coming out of a great crime. In this case, 
from the house of David, there was a revolution, there was a civil war against the line that had been installed by God. So also, what we should look at here is that Yatam is describing kingship as as self-destructive. It's destructive of the very ones it's intended to protect. His fable of the trees is saying that no one in the right mind would want to be king. In the same sense, think about today's political process. Who in the right mind would subject themselves to this? Who would want their loved ones to go through this acid bath of, of examination by the different medias? Who would want to subject themselves and their family to attacks by the, the political consultants on the other side, the dirty deeds that are done dirt cheap, or maybe not so dirt cheap, maybe done at the behest of a large fortune, just like in Avimelech's time, 70 shekels of silver for the throne, one piece of silver for each brother that was to be murdered. Secondly, his point in this fable is persons of honor engaged in constructive activity have no time for the political agenda. Rule then often falls to the despicable elements of society. That's what he's saying here, the bramble bush. And third, rulers, those who step forward, those who desire power, and we should always approach with caution anyone who thirsts for power. These rulers have a tendency to desire this power for the worst reasons, which is their own narcissistic self-interest. Now that's not, I'm not painting everyone with a broad brush. I'm sure that there are altruistic men and women that go into politics. I'm sure there are those in politics who have the good of our nation, our state, or our city, you know, at heart. I'm sure of that. Um, They've got to be there someplace. These people, for the most part, in order to gain power, they're often forced to offer promises they cannot fulfill. It's like the bramble bush promising all the other trees, I will provide cover and shade for you. This little thorny bramble bush that even a small little rodent would have trouble crawling under without getting scratched by it, is promising these things to the cedars of Lebanon, these tall, magnificent trees. And fourthly, something that I think is very striking, it's been said for ages, and it's still said, people tend to get the leaders they deserve. Yotam's fable is not only a polemic against a certain kind of kingship, it's actually directed primarily at those who are foolish enough to anoint a worthless man, a bramble, to be their king. They're making a bramble man their king. And along these lines, there's been much wisdom that's been shed on this idea of rulership. Most appropriate to what we're speaking of, I think of John Calvin's commentary on Romans when he's talking about Romans 13 and the authority of government that is put in place by God as his minister. 
Calvin says in his commentary, For since a wicked prince is the Lord's scourge to punish the sins of the people, let us remember that it happens through our fault that this excellent blessing of God is turned into a curse. At a later time, from the period of Judges, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaks a prophetic warning of judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. And we find this in the third chapter of Isaiah. And I'm going I'm to draw from verses 4 and 12 in that chapter. And this judgment is, is manifested in large part through those who are brought into leadership. And Isaiah says, Thus say the Lord, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. What Isaiah is prophesying here really is the complete destruction of the social order, which can be seen in and and brought about by wicked rulers. Wicked, worthless, weak, vain, selfish rulers. Now, politics does matter. Politics guides the social order. And when I speak to you of politics, I do not speak to you, unless I make an exception, like I have in the past, I do not speak to you of factionalism. In our case, the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party. I speak to you about politics in the classical sense, that politics is how people exist together in a social order. This is the classical definition that philosophers and great writers use when they deal with the topic of politics. Unfortunately, we default to this idea of factionalism, that there's red and blue, right and left, Democrat, Republican. This is not what I speak of. But Isaiah's judgment is very interesting. Historically, there's no record of infants or women ruling over Judah. So what is he talking about? Did this judgment not come to pass because there was no baby king? There was no, there was no queen that was ruling over them? No. We should not take this prophecy literally. What is being said is that the leaders will not exhibit the courage, a manly trait, to confront the issues in enemies that must be confronted. They're going to be weak-kneed. They're going to be like babies. They're going to be, in the, in the ancient sense, like women who are not in the front lines fighting. In essence, Judah will have leaders that govern by popular polling. They'll want to be popular with the people. They will not take a stance that goes against what everyone thinks they want or what's best for them. Does that not sound familiar? That's a curse that we have in leadership. And that these leaders will be self-serving, just like a baby. What is a baby interested in? Its own needs, right? Baby doesn't know about others' needs. So they will silence the unpopular voices, such as the prophets of God who warn of coming judgment. Just like at the 10 a.m. hour, Pastor Steve talked about what happened to the prophet Isaiah. In church tradition, what we're told, it's not in the scripture, But church tradition is that Manasseh, King Manasseh, the evil King Manasseh, very, very evil King Manasseh, had him sawn in half. So, the life of a prophet was not something people would want to take upon themselves. 
The first point I want to make with you is God's standards for leadership must be our standards. God's standards for leadership must be our standards. The main concerns in Yacham's fables are the stupidity of the trees who call on the bramble to rule over them. And Avimelech is the bramble man, and the lords of Shechem are the foolish trees. And the usefulness of the bramble, except in bringing disaster. The stunted bramble, as we've discussed, cannot provide cover, cannot provide shade, but it certainly can spark an inferno, as the bramble in the fable threatens to do. The concern really is not that worthy trees turn down the offer of kingship, but that a bramble accepts this offer. The problem really, I don't think, is kingship itself, because we do see the, 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 the need and the value and the, the wonderfulness of a true king in our Lord and Savior. So the problem is the character of the king and his cronies. Yatam's theme is the foolishness and peril of accepting clearly unqualified leadership. Brambles make good fuel for fire, but poor kings. They burn better than they reign. History is full to the brim with bramble leaders. We could talk at length about them, but that's not our main concern, history in general. Our concern today, and my concern with what I'm speaking of, is with the church in particular. Now, God has provided for us qualifications for leadership in the church, has he not? Paul writes to his young protégés, Timothy and Titus, about the qualifications. They need to build up their church. They need assistance and leadership. So what they should look for is exactly what Paul looked for when he chose Timothy and Titus. These qualifications are God-given. It's not just once upon a time and just in the case of Paul choosing some men. This is for all time during this age are these qualifications in effect. Yet many places in the visible church today, and I'm speaking of the universal church, of course, these qualifications for leadership are ignored as outdated and discriminatory. There's lots of arguments given as to why we can shunt these verses aside that provide these qualifications. Interestingly, Jesus says something in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 43, that demonstrates that he well knew this perversity of man to reject God-ordained leadership for something that was false, for something that God was not putting in place. And Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Such is our fallen nature, rejecting God's word, rejecting God's standards for those whom he would have lead his church. Really, we see this in John's passage. It's really actively rejecting Christ himself. 
and it is laying a torch to the brambles that have been brought into the church. Going back to our, 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 our text at hand, uh, Judges chapter 9, verses 16 through 21. Yatam continues his address here. He's done with the fable. He moves on. He's presenting two options after he's told the fable. But really, you know, when we, as we read it, think about it. There's really no choice here. The, the act has been done. This should have been thought about beforehand. But he has a point in pointing this out. <clears throat> Starting at verse 16. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Herubalal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Avimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and beat Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from beat Milo and devour Avimelech. And Yotam ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Avimelech, his brother. So in this passage, Yatam is interpreting his own fable for them. He abandons the third-person style of a storyteller, and he addresses the people of Shechem directly. And his interpretation really is in two parts. The first part, the longest part, is verses 16 through 19, where he challenges the integrity of those who have made Avimelech king. This matches, in the fable, the brambles questioning of the tree's integrity. And the second part is just one verse in our Bible. The second part of Yatam's interpretation, he invokes a curse upon them if they have indeed acted in bad faith, matching the bramble's curse of bringing fire. So Yatam's interpretation of the fable reveals that this is a matter of ethics. The central issue is clear in how his words direct our attention to proper ethical behavior in 9.16. Verse 16 there is about faithfulness. It's about blamelessness. It's about righteousness. All of which have to do with the ethics of the rulers of Shechem. This is made clear in how Yatam begins and ended his interpretation of the fable. It uses the same clause, clause being a small group of words that express a certain point. And what he says at the beginning and at the end of the fable, or the interpretation, excuse me, he says, if you have acted in good faith and integrity. That bookends the ethical options. And the Hebrew used here for, for good faith and integrity, imet utamim, literally means if you've acted in truth and perfection. 
perfection, the, the Hebrew word there used here in, in this context conveys the notion of absolute and total fidelity. Who should they be faithful to? Who, who do they owe faithfulness to? Well, to the Lord God, number one, right? And number two, to the, to the ruler, to the, excuse me, the judge, the deliverer that God raised up, which was Gideon, Yerubal. They've done neither of these. But there's another dimension to this matter. Yatam might have encouraged the people of Shechem to renege on their covenant with the newly anointed king. But he didn't. But they were accomplices in Avimelech's crimes. If they had treated Yerobal's family the way they should have, with fidelity, this conspiracy never would have been entered into. The central charge he brings against his hearers is that they have not dealt truthfully and blamelessly with Yerubal's family. That, that's really center here. They were obliged to do this because of the benefits he had conferred upon them. Rescuing them from the Midians. Restoring their way of life to them. He reminds them of his father's good deeds. In verse 17, For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. He rightly charges the lords of Shechem with disloyalty. Verse 18, And you have risen up against my father's house and have killed his sons. And he sets before them the alternatives of either blessing or curse. If then you've acted in good faith, then rejoice. This blessing is loaded with irony. Yatam is saying, if what you did was the right thing, then go ahead and celebrate and be merry that you've made Avimelech king. And in return, Avimelech should celebrate and be merry that you men of Shechem have raised him up to be king. But that's not even a, 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 a real alternative here, is it? Because the crime is done. It cannot be undone. It is irrevocable. All of them have entered into a conspiracy that involved murder. The murder on a stone of sacrifice of 69 brothers. Yotam's whole purpose of this address to this gathering was to call them to account before God. That's what his intention is. It's seen in verse 7. At the very beginning he says, Listen to me, that God may listen to you. If not a blessing, then a curse. Verse 20. But if not, if you've not acted righteously, faithfully, and blamelessly, let fire come out from Avimelech and devour you. And may fire come out from you and deliver, devour Avimelech. This is a pronouncement of judgment by Yotam. And we shall see as the, pair, as the narrative progresses how the words of Yotam were fulfilled in God's coming actions against the men of Shechem and Avimelech. This is made abundantly clear. We'll see this when we get to the end of the narrative, which ends with the words, and upon them, the men of Shechem and Avimelech, upon them came the curse of Yotam, the son of Jerubal. This brings 
us to the second point I want to make with you today. Point number two, ethical behavior is part of and indicative of the Christian life. Ethical behavior is part of and indicative of the Christian life. We must keep in mind that both Avimelech and Shechem, the lords of Shechem, were under the covenant of Yahweh. They were recipients of the law of Moses in which murder is expressly prohibited. They knew this full and well. These are not pagans who do not know the word of God. However, even in the pagan's heart, it is written that thou shalt not murder. In every, virtually every culture, murder is prohibited. We are told in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's illegally or unjustly taken a human life. This is blatant rebellion against God to do so. Killing an image bearer of the Lord God is, in effect, killing God in effigy. Now, to us, in our modern age, this is really an idea that's strictly symbolic speech. It's a figure of speech. However, it was once very meaningful. It was a way to express in action what one could only do in thought. It wasn't protected by the First Amendment. This is how the powerless would show what they would do to, let's say, a king if they were to come into power, when they burn the king's effigy. We will burn down the king, and that is our intention. And this narrative that we see here in Judges chapter 9 makes it very clear that murder is connected to the demonic. We think of it as just a criminal act, but it it certainly is, but it is much more than that. The New Testament attests to this. Again, in in John's Gospel, 844, Jesus has a name for Satan. He calls him a murderer from the beginning. He was the first murderer. And every murderer after him continues as a seed of Satan. These 69 murders of Yatam's brothers, as I've taken care to point out, were committed on one stone one by one in a ritualistic fashion. Very demonic. And the failure of the people of Israel to show steadfast love, Hased, to Gideon's family for all the good he had done to Israel, it's chapter 8, verse 35, is another covenant violation of the fifth commandment, where we're told to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, this commandment goes beyond just respecting our parents. It it includes all of those whom God has placed in authority over us. And the thing for us to recall and keep in mind when we examine this thing is that the Old Covenant could not remove moral guilt. These murderers could not present a sacrifice that would remove this stain. The law of Moses provided for perfect moral innocence. In the Levitical law, the blood of bulls and goats covered over unintentional ritual sin. The uncleanliness, the imperfection that contaminated sacred space. The Levitical law provided 
for a cleansing of that so that the Lord God Yahweh could enter into the camp of Israel and dwell with Israel, but not moral impurity. The Levitical law did not touch moral impurity. A violator of the moral law was to be put to death. There wasn't a sacrifice made that covered over that crime. And only in the new covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ do we have a sacrifice that covers over intentional moral sin so that we may enter into the kingdom of God. That's why the book that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's a much Christ presents a much better sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to his Jewish Christian brethren, do not go back to the old covenant, brothers and sisters. This is what we have under Christ. You don't have that. You will not have that under the old covenant. This wonderful truth, however, that we have in the new covenant does not release us from the law of Moses, does not release us from obedience. Although, very clearly, our obedience to the law is not necessary for us to enter into the covenant relationship and the new covenant with Christ. In any condition we're in, we're able to approach the throne of Christ. We are called effectively in a state of moral impurity. But what once was burdensome, that is, keeping the moral law, thing where we knew we shouldn't do certain things. And we tried, we tried it maybe for a little bit, we wouldn't do them, but eventually we would. We could not keep the law. Now it's different for us, is it not? It's a joy to please our loving Father. We realize that the law is not a burden upon us. It's a guidance for our good life in walking the paths that God has set out for us. But this question of sin in the Christian life has been posed many times. It was posed to the Apostle Paul. And in Romans 6.1, he paraphrases. He says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not, is his answer. Forgiveness in Christ is not a license to sin. But how can sinful man, fallen sinful man, turn from his natural state? Paul goes on in Romans to explain to us that when we enter into relationship with Christ, when when we are called into that, that we die. Our old self dies. We die with Christ and we are resurrected as new creatures. For one who has died, Paul said, has been set free from sin. Paul tells us of the assurance of our salvation and deliverance from sin. Going on in Romans 6, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's someone else on the throne of your life now, and that's Christ, is what he's saying. He's saying, Now, as a Christian, sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Referring to our means of salvation, not that we can be what's called antinomian, which is against the, you know, just throwing out the law, we can do whatever we want. 
So if we continue in pattern and practice to live a life of sin, that is covenant disobedience to the Lord God, we show ourselves to still be slaves to sin. With Satan as our master, we are then nothing but counterfeit Christians. Now rounding out, ending the account of Yatam this morning, verse 21, and Yatam ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Avimelech, his brother. Now no mention is made here of the audience response to his speech, is there? Either they were unmoved by Yatam's appeal to ethics. So how hard were their hearts? After all, they bankrolled and are now celebrating 69 murders. So it sounds like they were pretty hardened, yeah? Or are they considering the crowning of Avimelech complete and unalterable? The deed's been done and that's it. There's nothing we can do. We've set this course of action and we just got to stick to it. Perhaps they realize their sin is irrevocable. They've crossed an ethical boundary line from which they see no way back. And this is often the case, isn't it, with those who commit terrible sins, who are estranged from God and do not understand and comprehend the greatness of his mercy because they themselves lack in mercy. Imagine these 69 men being murdered one by one. These men certainly did not go to their death willingly. There had to be hard hearts listening to their cries for mercy, their cries to escape this death. But these hearts are so hard that they were able to be involved in the murder of all of these men, one by one. What we have examined here today in the account of Avimelech began with the entrance into the scene by his youngest um, brother, uh, Yatam. And then it closes with Yatam's exit from the scene. And Yatam knows full well that Avimelech will not let up, that Avimelech will hunt him down and kill him. He has to. So now he's the sole survivor. He has also invoked a curse upon Shechem and Avimelech. Now, Shechem, the city of Shechem, has, has seized power. They're a force to be reckoned with now. So he runs. He runs for his life. He runs to a place called Beer. And we don't know where this place is exactly. The word Beer means a well. So it's probably, it's in the desert, probably located, you know, uh, there and serving as a watering place for nomads and traders. The important point is that Yatam went far away, far away as he could to save his own life. This brings us to our last point. Point number three, Christians must not, cannot be silent in the face of evil. Yatam is our example that I give you. The Lord used him to speak what it should have been plain. A great evil had been done to bring a man and his backers to power. Yatam functioned as a prophet of the Lord here. He pronounced a curse from God that was to come in judgment against the murderers. This, this will come about. And like other prophets of God, this was done at a great personal risk. Those who are anointed to speak for God are not just maligned. They were often murdered, most often by those who considered themselves the righteous people of God. Why is it that we today, we Christians, cannot be silent in the face of evil? 
Because if the Christian faith was solely an individual act, and if the Bible told us that we can follow Christ all by our lonesome, if there was a biblical warrant for the solitary Christian life, then I suppose we could live like medieval anchorites, those men who led solitary lives as recluses out in the desert, dig ourselves a hole and lay there and not talk to another person. But this isn't the case, is it? We know, we know that's not the case. Turn your attention to the book of Amos. And the Lord declares through the prophet Amos, in chapter 5, verse 4, the Lord says, Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, So God's speaking a warning here to those who would make justice bitter. How is justice made bitter? When it oppresses the righteous and rewards the wicked, justice is made bitter. Casting down to the earth, what is Amos saying there? That would, these people who make justice bitter would have the righteous sent to the underworld. That's what happened to the 69 brothers of Yatam. They were sent to Sheol. In other words, the wicked would have you die. Amos goes on, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. That is, the righteous man and woman who calls out the injustice of rulers at the gate, the gate of the city. Amos describes in detail the evil and injustice that will be prevalent. It will be so bad Amos is saying, and this is at the time when Jerusalem, Judah, is facing God's judgment, external threats, but it applies throughout the ages. It's not just something back then doesn't mean anything to us now. It's speaking to us now, but things so bad, there'll be no yatams. No one will speak out. Amos 5.13 says, therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. This isn't advice. This isn't a command to keep your mouth shut. What Amos is saying here is the righteous will be so marginalized and ignored that godly counsel will be withheld due to danger from the wicked. Now there's, there's times in our day now where people must be prudent of what they say and where they say it. You certainly would not want to go to downtown Atlanta right now and say certain things. The wicked would send you to Sheol. So there's, although there's danger in speaking righteously to the wicked, there's a greater danger, I hold, a danger of eternal consequences and being silent out of fear that one may be personally endangered. So, yeah, we don't do stuff that's, you know, where we're not going to be effective in what we're speaking. We don't commit, you know, blatant and obvious acts of martyrdom that have no impact. But we need to speak. Amos says, seek good and not evil that you may live and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Again, in the city, at the entrance to the city. So to seek and find good at the gates of a wicked city, we must bring it there. It's not there unless the people of God bring it to the gate of the wicked city. 
This applies to us and those like us. We're to do this, that we may live, and that the Lord God of heaven's armies, the Lord God of heaven's armies, he's a powerful reinforcement. He tells Amos, tell them, I will be with them, and the heavenly hosts, my armies, that are beyond numbering. What more could we want than heavenly reinforcements for what is laid out before us? We are to hate the evil that we find, Amos says, and love the good. And goodness comes only from God, including, and most importantly, in the people of God, those transformed by and through our triune God. And how are we to establish this justice in the gates unless we are inside of the gates, unless we are together as followers of Christ? One person alone cannot establish anything, much less justice. We must be together in this. How do we do it? We do it by sharing the word of God. That's, that's, our, that's, that's our duty. That's what the Lord would have us do. That's the great commission Let's not fool ourselves into thinking there are things that are more powerful humanly than the Word of God. There is nothing more powerful than the Word of God. And that is what we must stand upon, and that is what we must proclaim. And that's all I'm saying in this. I'm not encouraging any of you to go and counter-protest some wicked people. No. We are to live obedient, righteous lives. As such, we are a testament to God, and we are to share the word of God as God provides opportunities for us to do that. How different we need to be from Yotam. Think of Yotam, though. He was alone. He was not able to remain in the gates. God did not call him to sacrifice his life by remaining there and do with me what you will. No. After he reproved the rulers at the gates by speaking the truth, by speaking as a prophet of the Lord and seeking justice there, he fled. He ran. He hated evil. And the Lord, the God of hosts, was certainly with Yatam. As we see what's going to happen as we go on in chapter 9 next week, I find this verse in Amos to be most revealing. Amos chapter 5, the end of verse 8, beginning of verse 9. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. It is not human strength. It is not human power. We pray and support good, godly people that they may be empowered, that they may guide our, our, our governments. We do. We don't, we don't turn away from that. But we realize no matter what we face, that our God is greater than anything else. Join me in closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. It is such a blessing, Father, that we we can fall upon your word. We depend upon it, Father. It gives us hope in troubling times. Father, it lifts our spirits. It lifts our spirits to know that you are so great and that we are your people that you love us, you've forgiven us, you provide for us. Father, 
You have made it possible for us to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ, Father. May we be united in Christ always. May we demonstrate love and care for one another, Father. Show us the way to do this. Open our hearts, open our minds to guide us. Father, grant us wisdom in the face of evil to do what you will have us do, Father. Let us not act rashly. Let us not bring shame and dishonor upon the name of our Savior, Father. Let us always be a people that others will look at and consider Christ as being the mighty, powerful one. Father, I ask for blessing upon the rest of this day. Father, as we, as we depart, keep us safe as we go our separate ways. Father, and bring us back this evening for our evening service. And we pray for um, the preaching by Pastor Steve this evening at, at 5 p.m. That, uh, that we may benefit from it and that uh, it may glorify you as, as we know it will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.